Good morning, C4. I'm so glad that you're here this morning. I want to say good morning to all of you in Auditorium B, everyone watching and listening online in connect groups here in Ontario, around the world. We're glad you're joining us here this morning. This won't make sense to anyone on the podcast, but I had a guy just come up to me and say, love your Christmas trees. You're killing me. Now I have to do more than... Anyway, it's all good. You're going you're gonna to be, be fine. Uh, welcome to week seven in our major series for the year based out of Jesus's most famous teaching called the Sermon on the Mount found in the book of Luke and in the book of Matthew. We're going through the Matthean account. So if you have a Bible electronically, physically this morning, would you turn please to Matthew chapter 5. Let me once again remind our family this, about the significance of what we are studying. See, the Sermon on the Mount is what brings this neon home. The Sermon on the Mount takes the theme that we believe God has given us this year and brings it from thematic sort of idea to reality. The kingdom of God is found in your ordinary life when the Sermon on the Mount is found in you. Now let me again remind everyone, the kingdom of God is the reign and rule of God after you've accepted Jesus as Savior, Leader, Lord, and King. The Sermon on the Mount is given to those people that have already said Jesus is who he claimed to be. The Jesus of history is the Jesus of faith. They are not two separate things. They are one thing. When you declare that Jesus is Lord, you declare that he is God. When you willingly say, I want the reign and rule of God the Father expressed through Jesus the Son, empowered by the Spirit in my life, then God says, I give you the Sermon on the Mount. Now, as we've been saying since 2011, if spiritual gifts are the guaranteed place of power to see the kingdom of God grow and expand, and spiritual disciplines are the guaranteed place of transformation as we get to walk with the king of the kingdom, then the Sermon on the Mount is what the kingdom of God looks like in ordinary, everyday life. It is what the kingdom of God looks like when you're washing dishes. It's what the kingdom of God looks like when you're in the middle of business work. It's, it's in the kingdom of God. It's what the kingdom of God looks like when you're dealing with friends or, or, or family. It is the ethics. It is the lifestyle. It is being molded by Jesus himself. It is what right thinking and right action looks like after you have said yes to the kingdom of heaven. Now, over the last few weeks, we've heard Jesus on a lot of very difficult things. One person came to my office this week, a good friend of mine, and said, she said, wow, you, you are really touching on a lot of controversial things. I said, no, just my bosses. I'm going where he's going. <laughs> Murder. Angry, anger, adultery, human sexuality, divorce, remarriage, truthfulness, lying, taking God's name in vain. And Jesus comes once again this morning and he says, I want to talk to you, C4, this morning about something rarely addressed anywhere anymore. I want to talk to you about revenge. I want to talk to you about being persecuted for your faith. Actually, I want to talk to you, my people, about being insulted and put down 
What does it take for the kingdom of God to take more ground in us? What does it really look like for the kingdom of God, the kingdom come that is already among us as we've learned, to take real ground in this church? What does the kingdom of God look like when you experience injustice? When you're being insulted just for being a human, let alone being attacked for your faith? What are we called to do? How are we called to act? What do we think? Who do we trust in when it all goes sideways? Now, never forget, Jesus knew more about us than anyone else. He made you. He understands you. He walks with you. He saved you. He's dealt with you. And he has called all of humanity, if they are willing, back to actually what it means to be fully human. That is to walk with God, be loved God, love God back, love yourself, and love your neighbor. But one of the great things that violates all of that amazing love is revenge. And so hear this from Matthew 5.38. This is where Jesus begins today. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Those two phrases, talk to any first-year law student, they'll tell you it's one of the oldest written laws in the world. It's not just found in the Bible, it's found in all sorts of cultures. Now, within the Jewish scriptures, it's repeated three times. Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. And we need to ask ourselves the question, why was that law given in the first place? What did it really mean? How did it serve the people of God in that time? Well, the law was given for two reasons. First of all, and most importantly, it was restrictive. It was given so blood feuds would not take place anymore and escalation would be reduced. Let me give you an example of what could happen. I steal bread from you. You get so infuriated that I stole your bread, you come and cut off my hand. I am so absolutely angry, you cut off my hand, so I kill your sister. So your family comes and murders my whole family, so my whole town goes and massacres your whole town, and suddenly two countries go to war. Stealing to maiming to homicide to genocide. Now you say, oh, John, that's so extreme. No, it's not. You watching the news like I am these days? This is exactly relevant. And it's not only in tribalism areas. It's not only in areas. Listen, let's be honest about our words. Haven't you done this before with your words? Someone insults you at one way and you go way over the top and take greater revenge? Don't you see this on Facebook and on Twitter all the time? Don't we see this in social media? How about how you practice business? We've all seen it in some form. But this law is given to restrict, to say you can only do to a person what they did to you and not more. So if they took one eye, you can't take two eyes. If they cut off your ear, you can't cut off their head. But there's a second thing we need to remember as we deal with this this morning, and here it is. The law was never given for personal vendetta. This was given to the courts in their day. This was the law of the land, not the law of your family. This was to be enforced by the courts, not you, not your friends, not your brothers, not a group. Of, no, no, no. The courts did this, but by Jesus' day, it had all gone out the window. The law had been dragged into the personal arena. Bitterness, anger, vengeance, malice, hatred, violence was marking so many situations. And here's the unbelievably difficult thing. Are you ready? All sorts of good, God-fearing people kept saying things like this. God is just fine that I got revenge. God is just fine that I took you out. Because God said through his prophets and his holy word, an eye for an eye. So I sleep at night just fine because God's with me and he's definitely not with you. 
They had missed it. They had missed why it was given. It had been dragged into the place it was never supposed to be. And not only that, they've already missed God's heartbeat because they see it as prescriptive. You must. Not restrictive. Not as concession. Not as last resort. And they definitely forgot it was supposed to be done in the courts. Jesus says in verse 39, But I tell you. You've heard it said, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. I'm sorry, Jesus, what did you just say? That doesn't fit very well. Can you, can you just change that? No. Um, don't resist an evil person. Okay, so never. Is this a call for total pacifism? Is this a call if I'm in an abusive relationship just to put up with it because you know Jesus said it? Is this saying that if someone's getting the crap kicked out of them, I just can't interfere because Jesus, what does this mean? Most or many would say yes. Tolstoy called on all Christians never to be soldiers, police, magistrates, and never to interfere when someone's being attacked. But as I read and I prayed and I read over the church centuries, I think that Tolstoy and others have missed what Jesus is going at here. See, Jesus is dealing with a problem in his culture where people are misusing the principle from God's word, an eye for an eye. Jesus is not saying here no to the administration of justice. Rather, what he is addressing is a more dangerous thing. He is forbidding Christians. He's forbidding any person that claims that to take vengeance into our own hands. We are forbidden as Christians to be involved in revenge. We are forbidden as Christians to say, I will deal with this. I will bring justice. Do not take revenge on someone who's wronged you. Now, of course, we can still use the courts of our land. Paul talks about this in Romans 13.1. Everyone must submit himself or herself to the governing authorities. There is no authority except which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. God has established even the law of our land. But then let's all be honest. There's no guarantee there. Many of you who come from other countries that have immigrated here will be the first to tell you, tell us that you stood up and you said the law says this and yet the law didn't protect you. So even though we have the right to access the law of the land and as Christians we should do so, wonder if the courts fail or wonder if things get dark and evil. Jesus comes to us because he reminds us that this is not the whole ball game and says you still can have hope in a place of grand injustice in a world of unfairness where bureaucracy or downright evil gets involved because God still has the last say. In the end, every single person who has ever existed will face the uncreated one himself, God, and we will give each one of us an account. And the scriptures are clear to us as Christians, though it is deeply countercultural and it violates everything about our rights. Give over vengeance to God, for in the end, God sees all, knows all. He has been present at every situation ever. And no excuse, you will not be able to con God on judgment day. You will not be able to pay off God. You will not be able to intimidate God. You will not be able to bribe God. You can't pull the wool over the eyes of God, for he is God. There are no secrets with him. The day of reckoning is coming. 
And so if you as a Christian really fundamentally at your core believe that there is an end coming, Jesus comes and he says, do not seek revenge. Now this command by Jesus cannot ever in a church or outside of a church be used to justify abuse or manipulation or a moral compromise or political anarchy or even total pacifism. That isn't his conversation here. But Jesus does say, take your hand off the gun. Put down the knife, whether it's verbal or real. For in the end, do you fundamentally, truly believe as a Christian? Do you really, really believe everyone's going to face him or not? Jesus doesn't end there this morning. He gives five more examples, five more vignettes from his day, from his time, from his own experience of what radical love and trust looks like when you are being assaulted just for being a human being, let alone being a Christian. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, by the way, this is about insulting someone at their core. Listen to one pastor scholar who gives actually the context to this because I grew up hearing this my whole life and I've even put this into practice. But I never really understood till this week what really Jesus was referring to. He writes, contrary to what you might think this morning, he's actually not describing a physical attack here. But rather, this is a very traditional, calculated insult. Notice that Jesus specifically mentions the right cheek which tells us that he's describing a backhanded slap. Now, according to the rabbinic law of the day, the Jewish law of the day, to hit someone with the back of your hand was twice as insulting as hitting them with the flat of your hand. The back of your hand, when you did this in this culture, meant calculated contempt, withering disdain. It meant that you were scorned as inconsequential. You are a nothing See, Jesus is responding to something even deeper. He's responding to when someone walks into your life and says to you, you are garbage. You're not worth the air you take in. You never should have been born. You fill in every blank of every swear word I will not utter from this pulpit. And this is what Jesus is responding to. But it's even deeper than this because this is given in a response to persecution as we're going to see more and more. So what Jesus is preparing the church for is this. When someone comes to you and insults you because you believe in him, when you are called a false teacher, you believe in the devil, you're an idiot for believing in God, you can't believe in that Jesus person. Don't you know? Aren't you smarter? Don't you know that we've got all the answers now? When people insult you for being human, and when people insult you for being a follower of God, at that moment, in that moment, when you are slapped to the core of who you are, Jesus says, stop. Turn the other cheek. Because it's exactly what he demonstrated at his own trials, when they called him false, and they slapped him, and they beat him, and murdered him. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer that wrote, this is our visible participation in his cross. When you're attacked for following Jesus, when you're attacked for just being human, when you're attacked for your faith, turn the other cheek, do not seek revenge, love your enemy. 
It's interesting, as I was reading that same pastor this week, he took it in another direction that I think at least brings it even closer to home for us this morning. He says, you know, we're called to set aside our petty ways of giving, getting even. The kind of living that punishes others by returning their own sins on them. Maybe you can relate. If your spouse is messy, fine, I'll leave it messy in return. If your friend is late, fine, I'll be later next time. In effect, he writes, Jesus is asking us in turning the other cheek to make the other person and his or her well-being the center of our focus. We think of him or her, and we actually choose to adjust our actions according to what we might think would point them to Jesus. And when we do this, we begin to affect them. Such vulnerability, he writes, actually brings spiritual awareness. And then he tells a story that's been told many times by the generation before me. There's a guy named Tom Skinner who was from New York City who was the head of a gang called the Harlem Lords. He had a profound encounter with Jesus Christ and was deeply changed and also played football. And one time, the story goes, as he was playing football with, former, with his former gang, one guy took advantage of his newfound faith and kicked him and actually beat him on the field in the middle of the football game and mocked him. Tom Skinner, the former head of this gang, who I am sure, if you hear his story, would have probably killed this guy months earlier, walked up to this guy, and this is exactly what he said. You know, because of Jesus now, I love you anyway. See, this is what Jesus is talking about. This is a call for a greater righteousness that is not human. This is where words matter because deeds follow. This is evidence that the kingdom actually is taking root in the hearts and minds of people. Heaven birthed selfless love. Jesus comes and demonstrates it so counterculturally. And then he comes and says, since you are now my people, and since the world will only see who I am through you, you must take the way of the cross also. Do not take revenge. Verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. I was learning this week as I was studying that in that culture, you could actually sue someone for their shirt. It's right in the law. I'm suing you for your shirt. Check. But you were not allowed to sue sue someone for their coat. I was like reading, really? It's actually in the Bible, in the book of Exodus. God did not allow you to take someone's coat. Why? Because it was your coat and it was your blanket. So you could take the shirt, but not a person's blanket. So we all have blanky issues. We're all good. So, right? But Jesus comes and he simply says these words. When someone comes and sues you for your shirt, give them the thing they're not even allowed to have. Now, is this talking about all lawsuits? Well, no, because, of course, we know that the law is clear, and in our litigation-happy society, it's crazy land half the time. No, this is talking about, we need to get this. This is talking about persecution. This is talking about when you are being attacked for being a follower of the way. In those extreme moments, show unnatural love. As someone is trying to use the courts even to disparage you as a believer, you say to them, I'll do the unexpected. Paul wrote it like this in Romans 12, once a murderer of Christians, now Jesus' follower, 
Verse 14, bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse. It says down in verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. Here it is. Oh, everyone put their phones down. Listen. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. But you leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, you feed them. If he is thirsty, you give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on their head. Literally, no, metaphorically. Do not be overcome by evil. Oh, can, oh stop. Do not be overcome by evil. Don't go back to the kingdom you got saved out of. But overcome evil with good. Jesus, step by step, is walking his people on how to deal with following him and being persecuted for him. And he says this next thing, which brought up so, emotion, so much emotion. See, we don't understand the power of what he's about to say because we weren't there 2,000 years ago and we weren't Orthodox Jews. He brings up this one thing and it would elicit so much emotion in the crowd. These are people who are living under occupation. These are people who have other people running their lives and they have lost their rights. The Roman Empire has come to town. And he quotes verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, you go with them two miles. Now this word forces right there actually is a Greek word that comes from a different place called Persia. It's what we call modern day Iran. Now the Persians, when they ruled the world, invented a messenger system that became the foundation for that little word. Here's what they'd do. They'd walk in and invade a town, and when they had conquered it, when they wanted to send a message back home, they would walk to anyone they desired, and they'd just take their horse. Didn't matter if you needed it. Didn't matter. No, just that horse is mine. And they would ride that horse till it ran out of energy, and they'd repeat it all the way back to Persia. That's where the word forces comes from. Injustice. When someone steals your livelihood. Now during Roman occupation, it was the exact same thing. It was Roman law that any Roman officer or soldier could force you to carry anything they desired for one mile. It was law from Spain all the way across. Now you see this in the story of Jesus' death, right? Jesus drops his cross and a soldier says to Simon of Cyrene, You, you pick up his cross. Now, it wasn't just this moment, no, no. Everyone knew what was going on. It was the law. You had to do it. And Jesus comes and he explicitly says something that no one in the crowd wants to talk about. This one act summarizes everything they hate about the Romans. It brings up all the shame, the guilt, the anger, the frustration, the religious and political hostility. And Jesus says, when that soldier who has no right to abuse you calls you to carry his pack for one mile, I want you as a God-fearing Jew who's now met the Messiah to do it for two miles and do it with joy. Show your occupier mercy and justice that makes no sense from this side of heaven. You've got to understand the average person would be sitting there like, you're crazy. And Jesus is saying, oh no, I'm not. I'm bringing a new kingdom. Verse 42, give to anyone who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Okay, hold on a second. 
Is this saying that I have to give financially to anyone who asks of it? I uh, wonder, wonder if someone keeps taking advantage of me or, or what's the context. wonder if the giving leads to hurting people or hurting myself or hurting my family. Uh, should I do this? Now, let me just stop and say to us as Christians, first of all, let's not presume it's hurting someone unless we know. How interesting how many middle class Christians walk by those who are genuinely begging we say in our hearts, what? Get a job. Wow, I'm glad you know the whole context of that person's whole life. We are called to be deeply generous people. I love what Tony Campolo years ago said from the stage. You give to anyone who's asking if you don't know the context, because in the end on Judgment Day, they're responsible for how they use the money, not you. One of my friends who worked with those communities always reminded me just to stop when I'm rushing down the street, to get on my knees just for a moment like this, look the person in the eye. They never expect it, and just say, what's your name? And then give, because acknowledging humanity is so important. But wonder if you know that the giving is really going to hurt. Is Jesus saying just do it? No. See, understand again the context of what's going on. This again is when someone is financially abusing you because of your faith. This is what Luke says in Luke 6.35. Love your enemies, do good, lend, and expect nothing in return. It again is blessing someone who is coming after you in an unexpected way. Jesus chooses to summarize all of this by his next statement. And he chooses in that moment to quote actually one of the other misquoted scriptures of his day where revenge was justified and love had become limited. Many of you have heard this verse before. Listen to it afresh. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. By the way, this was taught everywhere in Jesus' day. In the monastic communities near the Dead Sea when they discovered scrolls, here's actually what was written on many of them. Love your brother and hate the outsider. Now, they're quoting a Bible verse. I mean, this wasn't just metaphorical. I mean, they're quoting something. So, well, where is it? Well, it's actually in Leviticus 19.18. Let me read it to you. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Oh, hold on. Hate your enemies not there. So how in the world did God's people who had God's written word, who supposedly loved God so deeply and wanted the Messiah's kingdom to come, how did they arrive at adding something to the scriptures? Well, here's the mentality of the day. The average Jew of the day said neighbor meant Jew. Neighbor meant those who belong to my religion and my race. So I must love my own people, but all other people are excluded as enemies of God. So I must hate what God hates. So I'm done with all of you. Jesus comes and says, I am God. Let me undo this whole notion of enemy. He teaches at another point, the Good Samaritan says all enemies actually are neighbors. And it was Scott McKnight who I read this week who said, prejudicial love is only a way to love yourself. And Jesus comes after that and he says, I want you not to hate your enemy. I want you to love your enemy. And then Jesus does it. See, this is the moment. If you're getting distracted or bored or yawning, listen to this, please. This is the moment where Jesus summarizes. This is the culmination of Jesus' teaching on how we love our enemies after we've done everything else, which is already impossible, when he says this, but I tell you, Love your enemy and what? What's the word? Say it loud. What is it? Pray. Oh, flip. Catch up. Catch up. (laughs) 
One more. Oh, there, okay. Pray. Pray for those who persecute you. So you will be children of your Father in heaven. I love how the King James says it. Bless those who curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Do you see it? Suddenly, your enemy becomes your neighbor. And the most powerful thing that Jesus Christ, God in flesh, our creator, redeemer, savior, the one who is the kingdom come, says we can do for those that hate us is this pray. Do you believe and act and live your life out of that mentality that prayer has more power than everything else that Jesus had said so far? Do you understand the source, the power, the life change that Jesus presumes in the act of prayer? He says, this is what you are called to do, C4. You bring your enemy before the Father through me, Jesus, and you beg God to change them like he changed you. Oh God, save them. Oh God, forgive them. Here's the crazy thing. Oh God, I request that that person that hates me so much and has used me and abused me, I ask you because you are merciful to make them a brother or sister of me through Jesus. Move them from enemy to neighbor to family. I ask for nothing less than you do in their life what you have done in my life. I fight for the person who hates me because you desire that all people come to repentance and life. Do you see how unnatural, how other-centered, how heaven-given bizarre this is? Richard Foster describes intercession this way. When you move from petition to intercession, you are moving, you're shifting, you're shifting your center of gravity from your own needs to the needs and concerns of others. Intercessory prayer is selfless prayer. It is self-giving prayer. It is the priestly ministry. It's actually one of the most challenging teachings in the New Testament is the universal priesthood of all Christians. As priests, every one of us in this room, if you're a Christian, appointed and anointed by God, we have the honor of going before the Most High on behalf of others. And this is optional. It's obligation. It's a precious privilege of all who take on the yoke of Christ. Jesus says, you take that person into the place where angels fear to tread. You bring that person or that group or that race or that organization, and you place them gently, not throwing them, before God the Father, and you say, oh God, act. Make them my family. That's what Jesus said in Luke 23, 34, when he was dying, right, Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. Jesus rejects all distinctions of favor and calls for undiscriminating love. That doesn't mean that once they're loved, they won't have to change. Love does not equal acceptance. Love equals acceptance, then life change. But Jesus says you love everybody. There is nothing in all Jewish writings to parallel what Jesus says here. One of the strongest historic experiences I read this week of this is found in the early 20th, 20th century during a terrible moment between Turkey and Armenia. A Turkish officer, it's historically recorded, raided and looted this home. He killed the aged parents, gave the daughters to his soldiers, and kept the eldest daughter for himself. We all know what that means. It's rape. 
Sometimes later, sometime later, she escaped and trained as a nurse, which means she was held for a period of time, which means she was a sex slave. As time passed, she found herself nursing in a ward of Turkish officers. Years later, one night by the light of a lantern, she saw the face of the one who had so hurt her. He was so gravely ill that without exceptional nursing, he would die. And she did it. One day, the doctor stood beside the bed and was standing with this nurse and said to this man who'd recovered, but for the devotion of this woman, you would have died. And he looked at her and in that moment of horror realized and said, oh, we've met before, haven't we? And she said, oh, yes, we've met before. And then in the moment of raw humanity and honesty said, why didn't you kill me? And she said, I am a follower of the one who said, Love your enemies. This is so unnatural, but it is our movement. Jesus reminds all of us in verse 44 that God causes the sun to rise on the evil and in the good. He sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. He reminds us that there is common grace for all, but though there is common grace... We are called as Christians to go farther and deeper. We are to go as Christians into a place where the kingdom of God truly is invading us that is moving beyond knowingness and comfort and beyond just our own people. We are invited and we are commanded to demonstrate grace and multiple shocking acts of grace. And so this is what Jesus says, you my people of my kingdom. You that have already part of the kingdom come, see for, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? See, Jesus is so provocative. He brings up the two people that good Jews hated, tax collectors and pagans. Tax collectors were ones who worked with the Roman occupation. And by the way, when you chose to be a tax collector, you were kicked out of the local synagogue. You could not worship God. Most people lost their families. And they were known for not only working with those who regularly executed thousands of people and oppressed a nation, they also regularly stole from their own people. They were hated beyond hated beyond hated. And Jesus says even tax collectors, when they hang out with each other, even they like their own people. And he says, and then pagans. Well, who are pagans? Every non-Jew who worshiped a demon or a false god. You think you're so much better than the rest of the world, he says to his own people, because you have the Torah and you have God's revelation, but even pagan families love each other. What is the difference? What is demonstrated? What is profound? What is life-changing if you just like your own people? Nothing. He says, but when you love your enemy... The whole world pays attention. It is a deeper, powerful, unhuman place. Another profound story of this radical, heaven-given love comes from a communion table in 1989 in El Salvador. Six Jesuit priests had just been murdered in their church. The housekeeper had been murdered. Another Jesuit priest was supposed to be there, was lecturing, came back to the chaos in the village. Death everywhere in the middle of, con, you know, just all sorts of conflict. And he led a communion service on All Saints Day. And on that day, here's how the story reads, around the communion 
altar that day. There were various cards with the names of family members who were dead or had been murdered. People would, of course, love to go put flowers in the graves, but couldn't because they were locked up. And beside the cards with the names of family members, there was one other card. No flowers. It just read, Our dead enemies. May God forgive them and convert them. At the end of the communion service, one of the priests asked the old man, what was the meaning of this last card? And he said, well, you know, we're Christians, right? I love it. We believe that our enemies should be on this altar too. They're our brothers and sisters, despite the fact that they kill us and murder us. And you know what the Bible says, right? It's easier to love our own, but God also asks us to love those who persecute us. Jesus simply ends by saying in verse 48, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Is this saying that we are now back into works righteousness? If we work really hard, God's going to like us more? No, no, that is not what Jesus is teaching here. What he is saying is be whole, be full of love, be full of goodness, be unblemished. Or as Luke records the same verse, Luke 6, 36, be merciful just as your heavenly Father is merciful. See, basically what we learn, I was reading a scholar this week, and I'll just summarize it because of time, but he said, We live in a culture where it's all about my rights. And Jesus says Christians have no rights. We have no rights because we've given them to our king and much of the time we will not even have our own rights in this world because that will become the place where we demonstrate love. He said, you cannot interpret Jesus' words legalistically. I love when I read it. He said, you can't be a Christian who says, fine, I'll go the two miles. But right after the two miles, I'm done. No. This is about something deeper, something more radical. This is about personal self-sacrifice, which is displacing personal retaliation. Jesus says to us this morning, my kingdom has actually come. The reign and rule of God has come. The Lord's prayer is being answered. And when many of you in this room, you in Auditorium B, many of you online, accepted Jesus as Savior and leader and Lord over time by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can actually become this countercultural. We can be filled with such holiness and such love that we would never, ever naturally do. And Jesus says, this is not option. This is the normal Christian life. God reminds us this morning he is judge. He reminds many of you that need to hear this this morning that in the absence of justice and reconciliation, when the government couldn't help or the lawyers just couldn't do it or the party is left or, listen, let me remind you again, no one, no one gets away with anything ever. There is coming a day. And better to give people over into the hands of a God who knows everything than you trying to do it and losing now and then. God also reminds us through his scriptures that of course we can use the law of the land if it's holy. But the real thing that's happening here is this. This will never happen in this church unless a deep move of the Holy Spirit makes us like this. Without a personal relationship with Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, this is impossible. You will never even come close to this if you've not connected yourself to the one who's done this already. Do you see the offering of Jesus among us this morning as we're praying for real renewal, continual revival, and awakening? Do you see the offer of freedom given to you this morning?
Oh, you don't have to be a Christian full of bitterness anymore. No. You don't have to be racially full of hatred anymore. You don't have to be touched by the cancer of prejudice. You don't have to hate anymore. Don't you understand that in the end, all will give an account and you are invited into the place of holiness to pray for those who misuse you and as you leave them in the hands of God, justice will either be given in the end or they will become your brother and sister. I, I tell you, there is nothing more powerful, more countercultural, more beautiful than when people in this church see their enemies baptized and they declare, you now are my family. This is the invitation of heaven to us. That we are not people of revenge, and we are not people of malice, and we are not people of anger, and we are not people that take the gun into our own hand, but we are people that trust the living God of heaven and earth, and we pray for those that hate us because we know how much we ourselves needed saving. And when we know the deep, surpassing love of God, at that moment you will pray for anybody because you will realize the depth of trouble you once were in also. Every person in the sound of my voice, listen to this, the scriptures say, we were enemies of God. Then God came for us. How do you know that the kingdom of God is growing? How do you know that the word renewal and revival is not a catchword or a tent that goes away in a week, but is really happening? When we begin more and more to be molded by the scriptures and Jesus frees us of this stuff that we've been saved from, where our words begin to work out in deeds, where we are reminded that yes, we have many enemies, but Jesus still calls them neighbor. And when, and here it is, and when we begin to submit ourselves, trust God, and we begin to intentionally pray for those that are against us. I wrestled all week with how to end this message. There was a thousand things I could do. List all the people you're angry at. Pray. All sorts of things. I wrestled all week because this is so... I said to Jesus this week, I don't like this. <laughs> I don't, I can deal with everything up to this point. This one bothers me. And I kept saying to him, what, what do you want to say to your people? What do you want to say to me? I mean, we are so blessed what you're doing among us. And we don't want to stop it. We don't want to put up any barrier. What would you say to us, Lord? I don't, what do I, what do I say to the people that I lead? And here's what I genuinely believe I heard the Lord say and tested it among many people to make sure it wasn't the tacos, okay? I really feel prompted that the Lord said simply this. You must pray that my people know my love in such a way that all this will come after naturally. And I said, well, that's not a great application, Lord. It's not three points, <laughs> And he said, no, no, like, no, you don't understand the amount of people in C4, he said, who do not 
know my love. They know it intellectually, but because of history, pain, sin, they will not let me love them in such a deep, all-consuming way. They will not let me heal them. They will not let me approach them. They're so afraid of my love, and they don't even know it half the time that if they would just allow me, the God of love, to love on his children, they will become this radical thing. So this is where I end. I'm just going to pray and ask God to do a miracle in our church that I cannot preach into myself, let alone you. Because only when you truly, truly, truly know the love that God has for you would you ever love an enemy. So I just join me in prayer. Auditorium, be the same. And it's just, we'll take a moment. Lord, I do not do this for dramatic effect. With my brothers and sisters in this auditorium and in Auditorium B and people on the GO train on planes right now, I don't know what else to say to you sometimes. I don't. Because this is so unnatural. So here's what I pray. God of love, I ask you to send the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that was on Jesus, and to bring love into our lives in a way I can't even articulate. I pray that no matter the age of people, no matter how long they've known you, I ask for the love of God in this place. Lord, I pray for such healing in our lives. And I pray for love to move from our heads to our hearts, that this church would be rooted in a love that makes no sense. And I beg you to free our church from hatred and prejudice and sin and unforgiveness in revenge taking, I, I'd ask, Holy Spirit, you'd literally come among us and start taking out of people's hands their rights. I ask for God the Father and the Son and the Spirit, one true living God, from this point forward in many lives, to give the gift of love to our church. And then I pray this. Would you, Lord, begin to prepare enemies for their own salvation? And may many, many people be baptized in this church and others who, because of the unnatural, heaven-given love of Christians, that they would be called brothers and sisters. We pray unashamedly with everything that we are Oh God, you do anything you must in this church.
anything for your glory and our freedom so the world sees Jesus clearly. We pray for your work in our church and we pray for the awakening of thousands. In Jesus' name, amen. The band's gonna come lead us now in a song that is very appropriate. And I would ask everyone just to understand that this is a holy moment because many people are processing things and what we're about to sing is truth and it is about to be declared. And so would you just prepare yourself to sing back to Christ, to pray back to Christ, to wrestle with Christ with what he's asking our church to become. God bless you today.